Chapter Eight, Part Two of Royal Highness by Thomas Mann, translated by A. Cecil Curtis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. When he proceeded, it was the middle of June, to pay another visit to the Spoelmanns. He found Imma in a very mocking mood, and her mode of expression was unusually scriptural and solemn. Mr. Spoelmann also was present this time and although his presence robbed Klaus Heinrich of the tete-a-tete -tete so much desired with the daughter, yet it helped him in a quite unexpected way to bear up against the wounds which Emma's sharpness gave him, for Samuel Spoelmann was friendly and almost affectionate towards him. They had tea on the terrace, sitting in basket-chairs of an ultra-modern shape, with the breezes from the flower-garden softly fanning them. The master of the house lay under a green silk, fur-lined, and parrot-embroidered coverlet, stretched by the table on a cane couch fitted with silk cushions. He had left his bed for the sake of the mild air, but his cheeks to-day were not inflamed, but of a sallow paleness, and his eyes were muddy. His chin protruded sharply, his prominent nose looked longer than ever, and his tone was not cross as usual, but sad a bad sign. By his head sat Dr. Watercluse with his continual soft smile. "'Hello, young prince,' said Mr. Spoelmann in a tired tone, and answered the other's inquiry as to his health merely with a half-grunt. Emma, in a shimmering dress with a high waist and green velvet bolero, poured water into the pot out of the electric kettle. She congratulated the prince with a pout on his personal prowess at the rifle festival. She had, she said, as she wagged her head backwards and forwards, read an account of it in the daily press with deep satisfaction, and had read aloud the description of his exploits as marksman to the countess. The latter was sitting bolt upright in her tight brown dress at the table, and handling her spoon gracefully, without in any way letting herself go. It was Mr. Spoelmann who did the talking this time. He did it, as it has been said, in a soft, sad way, the result of all his suffering. He recounted an occurrence, an experience of years gone by, which was obviously still fresh to him, and which always brought him new suffering on the days when his health was bad. He recounted the short and simple story twice, with even greater self-torture the second time than the first. He had wished to make one of his endowments, not one of the first rank, but a pretty considerable one, he had given a big philanthropic institute in the United States to understand in writing that he wished to devote a million in railway bonds to the furtherance of their noble work. Safe paper of the South Pacific Railway, said Mr. Spoelmann, and slapped the palm of his hand as if to show the paper. But what had the philanthropic institute done? It had refused the gift, rejected it, adding in so many words that it preferred to go without the support of questionable and ill-gotten plunder. They had actually done that. Mr. Spoelmann's lips quivered as he recounted it, the first time no less than the second, and longing for comfort and expressions of disapproval, he looked round the table with his little, close-set metallic eyes. "'That was not philanthropic of the Philanthropic Institute,' said Klaus Heinrich. "'No, it certainly was not.' and the shake of his head was so decided, his disgust and sympathy so obvious, that Mr. Spoelmann cheered up a little, 
and declared that it was lovely outside today and the trees down yonder smelt nice. Indeed, he took the first opportunity of showing his young guest his appreciation and satisfaction in the clearest manner. For Klaus Heinrich had caught a chill with this summer's constant alternations between warm weather and cooling showers and hailstorms. His neck was swollen, his throat felt sore when he swallowed, and his lofty calling and a certain amount of molly-coddling of this person, in request as it was for exhibition, had necessarily made him rather delicate. He could not help alluding to it and complaining of the pain in his neck. "'You must have wet compresses,' said Mr. Spurman. "'Have you any oil-silk?' Klaus Heinrich had none. Then Mr. Spurman threw off the parrot-coverlet, stood up, and went inside the schloss. He would not answer any questions, insisted on going on, and went. When he had gone, the others asked each other what he intended to do, and Dr. Watercluse, fearing lest an attack of pain had seized his patient, hurried after him. But when Mr. Spillmann returned, he had in his hand a piece of oil silk, whose existence in some drawer he had remembered, a rather creased piece, which he handed to the prince, with precise directions how to use it so as to get the most good out of it. Klaus Heinrich thanked him delightedly, and Mr. Spurlmann got contentedly back on his couch. This time he stayed there till the end of tea, when he proposed a general walk round the park in the following order. Mr. Spurlmann in his soft slippers between Emma and Klaus Heinrich, while Countess Lovignol followed at a short distance with Dr. Watercluse. When the prince took leave for the day, Emma Spurlmann made some sharp remark about his neck and the wet compresses, adjured him half-mockingly to nurse himself and to take the utmost care of his sacred person. But although Klaus Heinrich had no adequate repartee ready for her, she did not expect or want one, yet it was in a fairly cheerful frame of mind that he mounted his dog-cart, for the piece of creased oil-silk in the back pocket of his uniform coat seemed to him, though unconsciously, a pledge of a happy future. However that might be, for the present his struggle was only beginning. It was the struggle for Imish Bullman's faith, the struggle to make her so far trust him as to be capable of deciding to leave the clear and frosty sphere wherein she had been wont to play, to descend from the realms of algebra and conversational ridicule, and to venture with him into the untrodden zone, that warmer, more fragrant, more fruitful zone to which he showed her the way, for she was overpoweringly shy of making any such decision. Next time he was alone with her, or as good as alone, because Countess Louvignol was the third, it was a cool overcast morning after a break in the weather the night before. They rode along the meadow woods, Klaus Heinrich in high boots, with the crook of his crop suspended between the buttons of his grey cloak. The sluices at the wooden bridge upstream were shut. The bed of the stream lay empty and stony. Percival, whose first outburst had died down, jumped here and there or trotted sideways, dog-fashion, in front of the horses. The countess, on Isabeau, kept her head on one side and smiled. Klaus Heinrich was saying, "'I'm always thinking, night and day, about something which must have been a dream.' I lie at night and can hear Florian over in the stall snuffling. It's so quiet. And then I think, for certain it was no dream. But when I see you as I do today, and did the other day at tea, 
I cannot possibly think it anything more substantial. She replied, I must ask you to explain yourself, sire. Did you show me your books nineteen days ago, Miss Spoelmann, or not? Nineteen days ago? I must count up. No, let's see. It's eighteen and a half days, unless I'm quite out. You did show me your books, then? That is undoubtedly correct, Prince, and I delude myself with the hope that you like them. Oh, Emma, you mustn't talk like that, not now and not to me. My heart is so heavy, and I have such lots still to say to you, which I couldn't get out nineteen days ago when you showed me your books, your masses of books. How I should love to carry on where we broke off then, and to forget all that lies between. For heaven's sakes, Prince, rather forget the other. Why go back to it? Why remind yourself and me? I thought you had good reason to observe the strictest silence on such subjects. Fancy letting yourself go like that, losing your self-possession to such a degree. If only you knew, Emma, how unutterably pleasant it is for me to lose my self-possession. No, thanks. That's insulting. Do you know that? I insist on your showing the same self-possession towards me as towards the rest of the world. I'm not here to provide you with relaxation from your princely existence. How entirely you misunderstand me, Emma! But I am well aware that you do so deliberately and only in fun, and that shows me that you don't believe me and don't take what I say seriously. No, Prince, you really ask too much. Haven't you told me about your life? You went to school for show, to the university for show, you served as a soldier for show, and still wear the uniform for show, you hold audiences for show, and play at rifle-shooting, and heaven knows what else for show. You came into the world for show, and I am suddenly to believe that there is anything serious about you? Tears came to his eyes while she said this. Her words hurt him so much. He answered gently, you are right, Emma. There is a lot of fiction in my life. But I didn't make it or choose it, you must remember, but have done my duty precisely and sternly as it was prescribed to me for the edification of the people. And it is not enough that it has been a hard one and full of prohibitions and privations. It must now take revenge on me by causing you not to believe me. You are proud, she said, of your calling and your life, Prince, I know well, and I cannot wish you to break faith with yourself. Oh, he cried, leave that to me, that about being true to myself, and don't give it a thought. I've had experiences, I have been untrue to myself, and have tried to get round the prohibitions, and it ended in my disgrace. But since I've known you, I know... I know for the first time that I may, for the first time, without remorse or harm to what is described as my lofty calling, let myself go like anybody else, although Dr. Überbein says, and says in Latin, that that must never be. There, you see what your friend said. Didn't you yourself call him a poor wretch who would come to a sad end? He's a fine character, I esteem him greatly, and owe him many hints about myself and things in general. But I've often thought about him recently, and as you expressed so unfavorable a verdict upon him then, I've spent hours considering your verdict, and was forced to own you right. 
for I'll tell you, Imma, how things stand with Dr. Überbein. His whole life is hostile to happiness, that's what it is. That seems to me a very proper hostility, said Imma Spoelmann. Proper, he answered, but wretched, as you yourself said. And what's more, sinful, for it is a sin against something nobler than his severe propriety, as I now see, and it's this sin in which he wished to educate me in his fatherly fashion. But I've grown out of his education. At this point I have. I'm now independent and no better, and though I may not have convinced Überbein, I'll convince you, Emma, sooner or later. Yes, Prince, I must grant you that. You have the powers of conviction. Your zeal carries one along irresistibly with it. Nineteen days, didn't you say? I maintain that eighteen and a half is right, but it comes to much the same thing. In that time you have condescended to appear at Delphinenort once, four days ago. He threw a startled look at her. But, Emma, you must have patience with me, and some indulgence. Consider, I'm still awkward. This is strange ground. I don't know how it was. I believe I wanted to let us have time, and then there came several calls upon me. Of course, you had to fire at the targets for show. I read all about it. As usual, you had a rousing success to show for it. You stood there in your fancy dress, and let a whole meadow full of people love you. Halt, Emma! I beg you, don't gallop. One can't get a word out. Love, you say. But what sort of love is it? A meadow love? A casual, superficial love? A love at a distance, which means nothing? A love in full dress, with no familiarity about it? No, you've absolutely no reason to be angry, because I express myself pleased with it for I get no good from it. Only the people do, who are elevated by it, and that's their desire. But I too have my desire, Emma, and it's to you that I turn. How can I help you, Prince? Oh, you know well. It's confidence, Emma. Couldn't you have a little confidence in me? She looked at him, and the scrutiny of her big eyes had never before been so dark and piercing but for all the urgency of his dumb pleading, she turned away and said with a look which betrayed no secrets, No, Prince Klaus Heinrich, I cannot. He uttered a cry of grief, and his voice shook, as he asked, And why can't you? She replied, Because you prevent me. How do I prevent you? Please tell me, I beg. And with the reserved expression still on her face, her eyes dropped on her white reins, and rocking lightly to her horse's walk, she replied, Through everything, through your conduct, through the way and manner of your being, through your highly distinguished personality. You know well enough how you prevented the poor countess from letting herself go, and forced her to be clear-brained and reasonable, although it is expressly on the ground of her excessive experiences that the blessing of craziness and oddness has been vouchsafed to her, and that I told you that I was well aware how you had set out to sober her. Yes, I know it well, for you prevent me, too, from letting myself go. You sober me, too, continually, in every way, through your words, through your look, through your way of sitting and standing. 
and it is quite impossible to have confidence in you. I've had the opportunity of watching you in your intercourse with other people, but whether it was Dr. Samet in the Dorothea Hospital or Herr Stavenüter in the Pheasantry Tea Garden, it was always the same, and it always made me shiver. You hold yourself erect and ask questions, but you don't do so out of sympathy. You don't care what the questions are about. No, you don't care about anything, and you lay nothing to heart. I've often seen it. You speak, you express an opinion, but you might just as well express a quite different one, for in reality you have no opinion and no belief, and the only thing you care about is your princely self-possession. You say sometimes that your calling is not an easy one, but as you have challenged me, I'll ask you to notice that it would be easier to you if you had an opinion and a belief, Prince. That's my opinion and belief. How could anyone have confidence in you? No, it's not confidence that you inspire, but coldness and embarrassment. And if I put myself out to get closer to you, that kind of embarrassment and awkwardness would prevent me from doing so. There's my answer for you. He had listened to her with painful tension, had looked more than once at her pale face while she was speaking, and then again, like her, dropped his eyes on the reins. "'I must indeed thank you, Emma,' he answered, "'for speaking so earnestly. "'For you know that you don't always do so, "'but generally speak only derisively, "'and in your way take things as little seriously as I and mine. "'How else but derisively can I speak to you, Prince?' and sometimes you were so hard and cruel, as, for instance, towards the head sister in the Dorothea Hospital, whom you threw into such confusion. Oh, I'm well aware that I, too, have my faults, and need somebody to help me to give them up. I'll be that somebody, Emma. We'll help each other. I don't think we can help each other, Prince. Yes, we can. Didn't you speak just now quite seriously and unsatirically? But as for me, you are not right when you say that I care about nothing at all and lay nothing to heart. For I care about you, Emma. About you, I have laid you to heart. And as this matter is one of such inexpressible seriousness to me, I cannot fail finally to win your confidence. Were you aware of my joy when I heard you talk of putting yourself out and coming nearer to me? Yes, put yourself out a little and do not let yourself ever again be confused with that sort of awkwardness, or whatever it is, which you are so liable to feel in my presence. I know it. I know it only too well how much to blame I am for that. But laugh at yourself and at me when I make you feel like that, and attach yourself to me. Will you promise me to put yourself out a little? But Imma Spillmann promised nothing, but insisted now on her gallop, and many a subsequent conversation remained like this, without result. Sometimes, when Klaus Heinrich had come to tea, the prince, Miss Spillmann, the countess, and Percival went into the park. The splendid collie kept decorously at Emma's side, and Countess Louvignol walked two or three yards behind the young people, for soon after they had started she had stopped for a second to twine her bent and bony fingers round a blossom and she had never made good the distance she had lost. So Klaus Heinrich and Imma walked in front of her and talked, but when they had covered a certain distance 
they turned round, thus getting the countess two or three yards in front of them. Then Klaus Heinrich followed up his conversational efforts, and carefully and without looking up, took Imma Spoelmann's small ringless hand from her side and clasped it in both his, the while he imploringly asked whether she was taking pains and had made any progress in her confidence in him. It displeased him to hear that she had been working, poring over algebra and playing in the lofty spheres since they had last met. He would beg her to lay her books aside now, as they might distract her and divert her from the matter to which all her thinking powers must now be devoted. He talked also about himself, about that sobering effect and awkwardness which, according to her, his existence inspired. He tried to explain it, and in doing so to weaken it. He spoke about the cold, stern, and barren existence which had been his hitherto. He described to her how everybody had always flocked to gaze at him, while it had been his lofty calling to show himself and to be gazed at, a much more difficult task. He did his best to make her recognize that the remedy for that which caused him to prevent the poor countess from driveling and to estrange her to his own sorrow, that this remedy could be found in her, only in her, and was given over absolutely into her hands. She looked at him. Her big eyes sparkled in dark scrutiny, and it was clear that she, she too, was struggling. But then she would shake her head or break off the conversation, introducing with a pout some topic over which she made merry, incapable of bringing herself to take the responsibility of the yes for which he begged her, that undefined, and as matters stood, absolutely non-committal surrender. She did not prevent him from coming once or twice a week. She did not prevent him from speaking, from assailing her with prayers and asseverations, and from taking her hand now and then between his own. But she was only patient. She remained unmoved. Her dread of taking the decisive step, that aversion from leaving her cool and derisive kingdom and confessing herself his, seemed unconquerable and she could not help, in her anguish and exhaustion, breaking out with the words, "'Oh, Prince, we ought never to have met. It would have been best if we hadn't. Then you would have pursued your lofty calling as calmly as ever, and I should have preserved my peace of mind, and neither would have harassed the other.' The Prince had much difficulty inducing her to recant, and in extorting from her the confession that she did not entirely regret having made his acquaintance. But all this took time. The summer came to an end. Early night frosts loosened the still green leaves from the trees. Fatma's, Florian's, and Isabeau's hoofs rustled in the red and gold leafage when they went for a ride. Autumn came with its mists and sharp smells, and nobody could have prophesied an end, or indeed any decisive turn in the course of the strangely fluctuating affair. The credit of having placed things on the foundation of actuality, of having given events the lead in the direction of a happy issue, must forever be ascribed to the distinguished gentleman who had up till now wisely kept in the background, but at the right moment intervened carefully but firmly. I refer to Excellency von Knobelsdorff, Minister of the Interior, Foreign Affairs, and the Grand Ducal Household. 
Dr. Überbein had been correct in his assertion that the president of the council had kept himself posted in the stages of Klaus Heinrich's love affair. What is more, well served by intelligent and sagacious assistance, he had kept himself well in touch with the state of public opinion, with the role which Samuel Spillmann and his daughter played in the imaginative powers of the people, with the royal rank with which the popular idea invested them, with the great and superstitious tension with which the population followed the intercourse between the Schlosses Hermitage and Delphinenort, with the popularity of that intercourse, in a word, he was well aware how the Spillmanns, for every one who did not deliberately shut his eyes, were the general topic of conversation and rumor, not only in the capital but in the whole country. A characteristic incident was enough to make Herr Knobelsdorff sure of his ground. At the beginning of October, the Landtag had been opened a fortnight before, and the disputes with the Budget Commission were in full swing. Imma Spillmann fell ill, very seriously ill, so it was said at first. It seemed that the imprudent girl, for some whim or mood, while out with her countess, had ventured on a gallop of nearly half an hour's duration on her white Fatma in the teeth of a strong northeast wind, and had come home with an attack of congestion of the lungs which threatened to end her altogether. The news soon got about. People said the girl was hovering between life and death, which, as luckily soon emerged, was a great exaggeration. But the consternation, the general sympathy, could not have been greater if a serious accident had happened to a member of the House of Grimburg, even to the Grand Duke himself. It was the sole topic of conversation. In the humbler parts of the city, near the Dorothea Hospital, for instance, the women stood in the evening outside their front doors, pressed the palms of their hands against their breasts, and coughed, as if to show each other what it meant to be short of breath. The evening papers published searching and expert news of the condition of Miss Spillmann, which passed from hand to hand, were read at family gatherings in cafés, and were discussed in the tram-cars. The courier's reporter had been seen to drive in a cab to Delphinenort, where, in the hall with the mosaic floor, he had been snubbed by the Spillmann's butler, and had talked English to him, though he found that no easy task. The press, moreover, could not escape the reproach of having magnified the whole business, and made quite an unnecessary fuss about it. There was absolutely no question of any danger. Six days in bed under the care of the Spoelmann's private physician sufficed to relieve the congestion and to make Miss Spoelmann's lungs quite well again. But these six days sufficed also to make clear the importance which the Spoelmann's and Miss Emma's personality in particular had achieved in our public opinion. Every morning found the envoys of the newspapers, commissioners of the general curiosity, gathered in the mosaic hall at Delphinenort to hear the butler's curt bulletins, which they then reproduced in their papers at the inordinate length which the public desired. One read of greetings and wishes for recovery sent to Delphinenort by various benevolent institutions which Imish Bullman had visited and richly subscribed to, and the wits remarked that the Grand Ducal Treasury might have taken the opportunity of offering their homage in a similar way. The public read also, and dropped the paper to exchange a significant look, of a beautiful floral tribute 
which Prince Klaus Heinrich had sent with his card, the truth being that the prince, so long as Miss Spoelmann kept her abed, sent flowers not once, but daily, to Delphinenort, a fact which was not mentioned by those in the know, so as not to make too great a sensation. The public read further that the popular young patient had left her bed for the first time, and finally the news came that she was soon to go out for the first time. But this going out, which took place on a sunny autumn morning, eight days after the patient had been taken ill, was calculated to give rise to such an expression of feeling on the part of the population as people of stern self-possession labeled immoderate. For round the Spulmann's huge, olive-varnished, red-cushioned motor, which, with a pale young chauffeur of an Anglo-Saxon type on the box, waited in front of the main door at Delphinenort, a big crowd had gathered, and when Miss Spulmann and Countess Löwenjul, followed by a lackey with a rug, came out, cheers broke out, hats and handkerchiefs were waved, until the motor had forced a way through the crowd and had left the demonstrators behind in a cloud of vapor. It must be confessed that these consisted of those rather doubtful elements who usually collect on such occasions, half-grown youths, a few women with market-baskets, one or two schoolboys, gapers, loafers, and out-of-works of various descriptions. But what is the public, and what should its composition be to make it an average public? One further assertion must not be passed over entirely in silence, which was later disseminated by the cynics. It was to the effect that among the crowd round the motor there was an agent in Herr von Knobeldorf's pay, a member of the secret police who had started the cheers and vigorously kept them going. We can leave that in doubt, and not grudge the belittlers of important events their satisfaction. At least, in the case of this particular crowd, it only amounts to saying that the agent's task was the mechanical release of feelings which must have been there, and must have been vivid. At any rate, this scene, which of course was described at length in the daily press, did not fail to impress everybody and persons with any acumen for the connection of things felt no doubt that a further piece of news, which busied men's minds a few days later, stood hidden in relation to all these phenomena and symptoms. End of section 20